go ahead, guys, get your Bibles out. We're in Ezra chapter four. If you're here for the first time, this is the read and rant. And what we do every day is we spend time in the reading of the word. We read through scripture. The, the goal is for every believer to journey through the totality of scripture. Um, I believe that it is an incredibly transformative and powerful endeavor for any believer to engage in, which is simply the reading of the word. I know sometimes we get bogged down with reading a verse or reading a portion of scripture, but there's just something about just reading through the entire scripture. So this is a discipline that we've engaged in over the past few months where we're simply reading through the entire Bible. We're simply reading through the entire Bible and we'll spend 20, 30 minutes doing that. And I hope you guys are seeing how much Bible we get through. We're in Ezra, y'all. We started from Genesis and we're in Ezra. And for those of you who were here from the beginning, we started in the New Testament in Matthew and we went through the entire New Testament. And now we're going through the book um, of Ezra. So that tells you how far we've gone to uh, through the Old Testament. And so that's what we're here to do. We're just here to read the scriptures and we're here to do it from a meditational posture. So this isn't a Bible study but it is a reflection. Uh, we want to reflect. We want to ruminate over the text. And some of you guys get to sit and endure me ranting. I call it the read and rant because we read and then we rant. Well, I rant. And, and so you guys get to eavesdrop into really what the Lord is convicting me of in that particular day as I read the scripture and as I read the text. And so that's what we're doing. And I know for many of you, this has been profoundly transformative and that's encouraging just to hear the stories of how God is transforming you through it. And so that's what we're here to do. And let's get right to it. Let's get right to it. Let's get right to the word. Today we're in Ezra chapter four and I will pray and then we're going to get started. We're going to ask three questions. God, what are you revealing concerning yourself? God, what are you revealing concerning people? And God, what are you revealing concerning me? What are you revealing concerning me? So let's get right to it, y'all. And let's read. Father, I ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would... Um, Lord, engage with us, Lord, as we engage in your word. Bless us today. Lord, guide us, lead us. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would uh, not impose ourselves on the text, but Lord, that you would impose yourself on our hearts. Lord, that we would uh, be encouraged today by your word and transformed by it. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's get to it. Ezra chapter four, verse one, it says this. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Asaradon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the father's house and said to them, you may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, king of Persia, commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, until even the end of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. In the reign of Assyrius, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, also, Bishlam, Mithradath, Tabal, 
and the rest of the companions of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into Aramaic language. Rehum, the commander of, sorry, the commander, and Shemshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes in this fashion. From Rehum, the commander, Shemshai, the scribe, and the rest of their companions, representatives of the Dianatites, the Afra, sorry, Afar oh my gosh, the Afar Sethites. My goodness, that's a, that's some crazy stuff right there. <laughs> the Tarpalites, the people of Persia and Eric and Babylon and Shushan and the Dehavites and the Elamites and the rest of the nations who whom the great and noble Osnapper took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and the commander beyond the river, and so forth. This is a copy of the letter that they sent him. To King Artaxerxes, from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river, and so forth. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. Let it be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. Now, because we receive support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king and searched that we may... and. That, that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, and you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, and that they have incited sedition within the city in former times for which this city was destroyed. We inform the king that if the city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rehum the commander and Shemshai the scribe, to the rest of the companions who dwell in Samaria, and to the remainder beyond the river. Peace and so forth. The letter which you sent has been clearly read before me. And I gave the command, and a search has been made. And it was found that this city in former times has revolted against kings, and rebellion and sedition have been fostered in it. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over the region beyond the river and tax, tribute, and custom were paid to them. Now, give the command to make these men cease that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to hurt the king, to, to the hurt of the kings? Now, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum, Shemshai the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews, and by force of arms made them cease. Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Chapter 5. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edu, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jozadak, 
rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. At the time, Tatanai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and, Sh- and Shethar, Boznai, and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them, Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? Then assuredly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. Then a written answer was returned concerning this matter. This is a copy of the letter that Tetanai sent, the governor of the region beyond the river of Shethar Boznai and his companions, the Persians who were in the region beyond the river, to Darius the king. They sent a letter to him in which it was written thus, to Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that they went into the province of Judea, to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones and timber is being laid in the walls. And this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke thus to them, who commanded you to build this temple and to finish these walls. We also asked them their names to inform you that they might write their names of the men who were chief among them. Thus they returned to us saying, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years, which a great king of Israel built and completed. But because the fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and carried the people away to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued decree to build this house of God. Also, the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple that was in Jerusalem and carried into the temple of Babylon. Those King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon, and they were given to one named Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, Take these articles, go carry them to the temple site that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site. Then the same Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. But from that time, even until now, it has become, it has been under construction and it is not finished. Now, therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that the decree was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem and that the king send us his pleasure concerning this matter. Then King Darius issued a decree and a search was made in the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon and at Akmetha in the palace, which is the province of Media. A scroll was found and it was written and, and, in, in, it, and in it a record was written thus. In the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem that the house be rebuilt. The place where they offered sacrifices, let the foundations of it be firmly laid. Its height, 60 cubits, its width, 60 cubits, and three rows of heavy stones and one row of new timber. Let the expenses be paid from the king's treasury 
and let the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple, which is in Jerusalem, and brought to Babylon, be restored and taken back to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, each to its place, and deposit them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatanai, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethar Bosnai, and your companions, the Persians who are beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. Let the work of this house of God, sorry, let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the leaders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. Moreover, I issue a decree as to what you shall do for the elders of these Jews for the building of this house of God. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense from taxes on the region beyond the river. This is to be given immediately to these men so that they are not hindered. And whatever they need, young bulls, rams, lambs, for burnt offerings of the house of God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the request of the priests who are in Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I issue a degree that whoever alters this edict, let a timber be pulled from his house and erected and let him be hanged on it and let his house be made a refuse heap because of this. And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it and to destroy this house of God, which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a decree. Let it be done diligently. Then Tatanai, governor of the region beyond the river of Sheth Bosnai, and their companions diligently, diligently did according to what King Darius had sent. So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Edo. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now, the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the descendants of captivity celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And they offered sacrifices at the dedication of the house of God, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. They assigned the priests to their divisions and the Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. And the descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves. All of them were ritually clean, and they slaughtered the Passover lambs for the descendants of the captivity, for their brethren, the priests, and for themselves. Then the children of Israel had returned from captivity, ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land, in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy. For the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God.
I'm going to keep this shorter today because I want to stop here. Uh, the reason why I want to stop here is I just feel like the timing of where we're reading, I'd like to stop here because now we're going to be introduced in the next section of uh, of this text. We're going to be introduced to Ezra, of whom this book is given the name Ezra, right? Um, and so you see one key player in this text, which is Zerubbabel, and then we're going to see a shift in the story from Zerubbabel to Ezra. And I feel it's a good place to stop. And so I'm going to stop here and just really reflect on a few things, a few thoughts to piggyback off of uh, some of the things that we've talked about in the past uh, few days, or at least yesterday that we've spoken about as it pertains to what I the Lord is convicting me of in the reading of this book. Um, as you, if you notice, the, this book's title is named is, is Ezra. If you, but if you've noticed here, Ezra isn't the only uh, character, right? The main person in the story. Um, this author is really talking about two particular prophetic leaders, uh, one being Zerubbabel and the other one being Ezra. And this all comes up later on because we've been doing a Bible study on Revelation. For those of you who are patrons, you, you may have heard um, references to Zerubbabel, or maybe I haven't gotten there yet. Maybe I haven't gotten there, but in our Bible study, we're going to get there because we see references to Zerubbabel and Ezra in the book of Revelation. And the reason why we see references to them is because, again, what the book of Revelation is, is it's a coded letter written in a prophetic code. It's not a letter about the end times, but it's a letter written in prophetic code about what was transpiring in that time for the children of Israel. And so he's using these allegories and these images, these symbols to uh, to help the children of God understand what's about to transpire in the church in the days to come, in their lifetime, in those days. And so he brings reference to Zerubbabel and he brings reference to Ezra. I'm only bringing this up because I want you to see how rich this particular portion of the reading is. Uh, what's so rich about it is that you see, and see Marcus, you already caught it, is you're seeing references to other prophetic books or brother prophets who we've given those titles in other prophetic books like Haggai, um, like Zechariah. So when you read books like Zechariah and you read, you know, books like Haggai, what you're going to see is, is you're going to see your Haggai, I say Haggai, Haggai, um, Haggai, some people say Haggai, I don't know what's going on with me today, but you are, you, you know what I mean. Um, you'll, you'll, you'll see now where those prof prophetic books, where they actually sit in the history of the children of Israel. Cause they're not, you know, they're not, um, chronologically, right? The, the book isn't, the Bible isn't chronologically organized. It's actually thematically organized. And so we, we see now where the prophet, you know, you know, Haggai or the prophet Zechariah, or you're going to see where Malachi fits in the story. You'll see where, um, you know, where the other prophets fit in the story. And so there's, there's, there's some chronology to it, but the chronology actually ends here. Um, or you can actually say that the chronology ended in Chronicles because Chronicles actually should be after these books. Okay. Chronicles should sit after these books, but either way, um, I don't, I don't want to belabor that. I just want to give you guys a heads up to see how rich, how, how much history 
there is in this particular portion of scripture. Um, if you've studied world history, you studied about Artaxerxes, you studied about Darius, right? If you studied world history in high school or in college, um, you, you studied about these kings. These are, th th these are actual events that have transpired. However, what we're reading is a historical narrative that from we're, he, we're reading a historical narrative from a different vantage point. We're hearing a historical narrative from a different perspective. We're reading the history of humanity through the eyes of the children of Israel. We're reading the story of humanity and the history of mankind through Israel's eyes. Anybody get that? We're reading it through Israel's eyes. So now, while we've studied Darius of Persia and while we've studied Artaxerxes, and these are things you studied in world history in high school and college, while you studied these things, what you're going to discover now is, is that there are many other stories involved in the story. You know, um, Eurocentric history is going to point out, right, um, you know, uh, Persian conquest. Babylonian conquest, right? Macedonian conquest, um, the Ottoman Empire, the, the Roman Empire, right? So, you know, a lot of our history is very Eurocentric, but most of the world history is, is Eastern focused, not Western focused. And so now we're getting a peek into the Eastern, sorry, yes, the, the, the Eastern perspective of the history of humanity. And at the center of this, from the vantage point of Israel, we're beginning to see where their story is in the grand story, where their story is in the biblical narrative, where, where the biblical story is in the historical narrative. Okay? The Bible is a spiritual book, but it's speaking about things that actually happened and things that actually transpired. Okay, And so I point all this out because we see Zerubbabel, and we're about to shift over to Ezra, but let's stay in Zerubbabel for a minute. What we, what we see that Zerubbabel has been tasked with is the responsibility and the call to rebuild this temple of God. They leave, the, the, the Israel's been brought into captivity. Right? That's how Second Kings ends. And now they've returned. And notice there was a quick little recap here that we read here. But then Second, King, Second Kings ends with them leaving Judah, leaving Samaria, um, um, sorry, leaving Jerusalem, leaving Samaria, you know, leaving Israel, leaving Judah to go into Babylonian captivity under the rule of a Chaldean king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. But now we see at the beginning of the book, how we opened up in Ezra, that Cyrus, who is the king of Persia, has been inspired by God to allow these people to return and Cyrus now has given them permission. Not only did he give them permission to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild their city, but he's also giving them resource. He's also giving them resource. 
It's one of the amazing things that we see in how God works through his people is that when God is working, he's going to coordinate resource together in order for the, for his people to accomplish what he's called them to do. This was a fulfillment of a promise, a prophetic promise right, of the restoration of Israel, of the rebuilding of the temple, of the rebuilding of the walls. All this was promised, and yet they don't have the resources. And even though they didn't have the resources, even though they didn't have the money, even though they didn't have the connections, even though they didn't have the things in place, God inspired a pagan king to resource them to do what they're called to do. It's a quick little side note. This is why it's critically important to understand what it means to be a church in the world, but not a church of the world. This is critically important, family. It's critically important to understand that God will use anyone in anything to accomplish what he needs to accomplish through his people. He will take a pagan king and and inspire a pagan king by the word of God to resource and permit the children of God to rebuild the temple. I find it funny that in the church sometimes we tend to look within a very small, myopic, microscopic perspective of how renewal restoration is done as if Christians aren't called into the world. It's, it's the dance of what it means to be a distinct people. Because as a distinct people, being distinct does not mean that there aren't partnerships that are being made with people outside of the body itself. I say that to say this, is the travesty in all of this is, that's right, the, rich, the wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous. Did you hear that? The wealth of the wicked is stored up for the righteous, meaning God will use anyone and anything to accomplish what he intends to accomplish through you. Yeah. He will use wicked people to accomplish what he intends to accomplish through you. You hear that? And so we see there, we see Cyrus, king of Persia, and Cyrus, you know, he 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 resources them. He writes a decree in a letter, and he's returning back to them all the wealth that was taken from them. And then here's where it gets weird. We get to Ezra chapter 4, if you'd allow me a minute or so here. And now after Cyrus, we have Artaxerxes. If you studied history and you know anything about Artaxerxes, notice who, who the key... Just think about that for a moment. Just think about that for a moment. That God is doing something, something incredibly powerful through this particular group of people, this segment of the children of Israel led by Zerubbabel. And yet the key players who play along with them are pagan kings. So Zerubbabel is in partnership with pagan kings. 
They're the ones giving the permits. They're the ones giving the resource. And they've been inspired to do it. Meaning God will use what's on the outside if he can't get it on the inside. God's going to use whoever he intends to use. He's going to use what's on the outside if he can't get it on the inside. He'll use it. (laughs) And yet, even though he's using what's on the outside to bless what's on the inside, pay very close attention. This is what the Lord is convicting me of today. I'm just ranting, y'all. Okay, I'm just ranting. I'm ranting like an old man. But this God who's using what's on the outside, showing Zerubbabel how you wouldn't have even gotten here if I didn't speak to a pagan king. Like you, you wouldn't have even gotten here if Cyrus didn't get a word from me. You didn't have it on the inside. It was somebody on the outside that I called to do what I intended to do through my people. This was not you. This was all me. And now through you, I have forged a partnership with someone on the outside. Pay very close attention, family. Zerubbabel is getting information and yet he's not getting revelation. He hasn't, he doesn't get it yet. Because in chapter four, and this is just the travesty of it all. In chapter four, he goes to build the temple and now he's got the resource. And then notice what it says in verse one. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were rebuilding the temple of the Lord God of Israel. They came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's house and said to them, let us build with you for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Asharadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. This speaks into the complex history of Israel because there were those who were taken into captivity, but there were those that had remained. There were those who were brought in from captivity back to Israel, back to Judah. And now they've returned. And so now they find occupation in the land. But it says in the text, that the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, already bringing definition to them that while we're of the same blood, we are not of the same mind. While we're of the same blood, we are all not of the same mind. I'm going to say something that's going to make a few folks uncomfortable. Just because they're related to you doesn't mean that they're for you. And just because you have similar DNA doesn't permit you to have to forge a relationship or partnership 
just because I have blood relation to you doesn't mean that we're family. We would define family by DNA. And yet, even though we have relation, we are not related. (sighs) We are, we have congruency, but we're not related. What do I mean by that? I mean, we have the same DNA. If you want to define that as being related, then sure. But we're not of one mind. I think we forget even what Jesus said when he said, when, yeah, I think, I think we forgot. We, we, we forgot what Jesus said when he said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? He said, the one who comes to do the will of my father, that is my mother and that is my brother and sister. Family, is it possible that we have misappropriated what family is? that we simply made family who were blood related to, not the person that we are of the same mind with. A lot of the brokenness in our lives we can root in our families, and yet some of it we've permitted because we have made certain people in our lives things that they ought not to be. Another side rant. I find it interesting how in the body of Christ, where we are of one mind, of one heart, of one spirit, called by one God, how we have a tendency to cut off people in our church, in the family of God, so much quicker than cutting off the people in our own blood family. I find it peculiar how we will forgive family members for some of the egregious things that they do to us over something like DNA. We've allowed DNA to define allegiance and covenant. when that's not even how Jesus defined it. Isn't that interesting? How someone can be your family member and not be for you. They can have the same blood and not the same mind. They can have the same DNA and not the same mind. And yet for many of us, the greatest hurt in our life are those who are of blood. Now, let me say this, blood matters. The bloodline does matter, but it's not enough for us to be related. We need to be of one mind in relation. We need to love one another. In the same way that we give grace to family members, in the same way that we give grace to the people who have hurt us, who we have forged allegiance and relationship with, we should be giving that grace as well to the people in our church. Yeah, we our cutoff game is strong for people in the church, but our cutoff game is so weak for toxic people in our family. Oh yeah, our cutoff game is real strong. 
somebody just says one little thing, says one thing that's offensive, one thing that hurts your feelings. We, we've made church hurt feelings hurt when church hurt isn't feelings hurt. So then one thing, and then after they say the one thing, you cut them off. I'm done with this church. I'm done with these people. I'm done with all of that. But think about how much you endured in your own family. And my question I have to ask is, have we given the same grace to our family members in the body of Christ as we've given to the family members in relation and in DNA? I don't know. Anyway, the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin of relation but not of one mind, came to him and said, let us build with you for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Asaradon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But the text says that the Zer but Zerubbabel in his discernment and the rest of the heads of the father's houses of Israel said to them, you may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build a house to the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, king of Persia, has commanded you. Notice how they respond. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate the purpose of their days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Oh, this is tough. This is tough. I, I, I got to stay here. I got to stay here. Because here's what Zerubbabel missed. I'm just going to sit here for a minute. This is what Zerubbabel missed. And I, th and I believe that many of us, we missed this as well. I'm one of the first people to admit it. I'm one of the first people to admit it. I'm one of the guys who miss on this. What Zerubbabel misses is that it's not enough to simply discern who your adversary are, but you have to also have a discernment for where they are within the circumference of your life. Let me say that one more time. It's not enough to know who your adversaries are. It's critically and equally important to know where they are within the circumference of your life, within the periphery of your life. Because the reality is, is that many of us, we cut people off emotionally, but we keep them present. And so when we keep them present, what happens is, is that we allow them now to infect like a cancer everything around us. We allow them to gossip and to speak ill of us. We allow them to create false narratives about us because we still kept them too close. Kept them too close. And I've suffered this, and I'm saying this from a personal level. I have suffered this. And I've suffered this, I believe, in part because, you know, I, I love people. 
I love people and I want to see the best for them. And I want to see God move through people. And, and, and so I have a way about me that just allows people to just sit around. Even when I know you're not for me, even when I know you're not, um, that you don't have any good intention, you know, I, I love you, but I've cut you off and kept enough of a distance from my mind to your mind, my heart to your mind, my, my heart to your heart, but I've kept you proximate. And there's a danger in that because if what came on the outside could bless what's on the inside, what's coming from the inside can cut off whatever blessing you can get on the outside. Whatever God is purposing in you on the outside, there are delayed promises in your life that have come from toxic people. There are delayed promises in your life that have come from toxic people. Because while you may have cut them off from your vision and your mission and your heart and your mind and your desire, you kept them proximate enough that they eroded everything around you that enables you to move into what God is calling you to move into. And so as a consequence, they trouble everything around you. And then you wonder why nothing is working. It's because you kept people you knew who were toxic close enough. Hmm. You kept people who you knew weren't for you close enough, family or not close enough. If what on the outside can bless you on the inside, what's on the inside can curse what's coming from the outside. Zerubbabel, he prohibits them. Notice in verse two, he prohibits, sorry, verse three, he prohibits them from building with them, but kept them close, kept them in the proximity. And what did they do? They started gossiping. They started talking. They started, you know, they started, look at, look at, look. then the people of the land, verse four, tried to discourage the people of Judah and they troubled them in the building and hired counselors. They hired people to frustrate them. So they're just putting little half truths and little half lies. And they, they're putting half information here, half information there. And, and a little bit over here, a little bit over there. Next thing you know, Zerubbabel's trying to figure out why stuff isn't working because in the end, they go to the powers that be and then they write letters to the powers. And the powers, Artaxerxes gets the letter and he says, oh, this is what their intention is? Oh, snap. If that's what their intention is, then we need to cut them off. We need to shut this whole thing down. And so what do they do? They shut it down, not because of Zerubbabel's heart, not because of Zerubbabel, but because he allowed them close enough to speak on his behalf. He allowed toxic people close enough to speak on his behalf. This is going to be a season for me, and I believe it needs to be a season for many of you, where you have to consciously distance yourself from toxic people. Distance yourself 
from adversaries who you know are adversaries. An adversary is not somebody who's a. Let me let me back this up for a second because I think we need to we need to I need to educate you for a moment. An adversary is not somebody who's against you. That can be an adversary. An adversary is somebody who's against what you're for. There's a difference. Because an adversary can actually like you. They just don't like where you're going. And because they don't like where you're going, they, by default, have an issue with you. Because if you were doing what they wanted to do, then they would be okay with it. But you're not doing what they want you to do. So instead, they give you the pleasantries. They show you that they like you, but then they sow these seeds of discord and you wonder why where you're going isn't working. It's because you got somebody who's too close to you, who's speaking on your behalf. Adversaries. Adversaries are dangerous. Dangerous. They are dangerous. You don't kill an adversary. You distance yourself from them. <laughs> That's it. You got to create distance because here's what happens. When they're too close to you, they now feel like they can speak on your behalf. And here's the problem. Notice in the text. I'm just giving wisdom today. I'm just giving the wisdom of this text, the wisdom of what this text is revealing. This is just wisdom, y'all, is, is that if you notice from the text, is they go to Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes finds credence in their claim. And the reason why Artaxerxes finds credence in their claim is because they're close enough. Because if they were far enough and they came with that claim, what Artaxerxes would ask next is, what makes you believe that? Where did you know these people? How did you know them? No, they hired counselors, people who were entrusted to counsel them. And they hired these counselors to frustrate their purpose. Did you hear that? To frustrate their purpose, y'all. <laughs> it's crazy. That for many of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You know it at work. You know it in your family. You know it. You know it everywhere. You've seen it. You've seen it. You've seen it. So what do you do in the presence of that? You have to create distance. What I love, though, is that even in that error, God's grace, <laughs> You know, the beauty of God's grace is because what God intends to do through you will come into fruition. What God intends to do will happen and it'll come to fruition because Artaxerxes, while, while they conspired against uh, um, Jerubabel, while they conspired against him in the project that the Lord had given him, while they had conspired, and at one point it almost seemed like this thing was dead and gone. What kept them was a word. You see, no matter what anybody says about you, it's the word. There's one thing that cannot be taken away. It's the word. It's what is written. It's what was said. 
And here Darius comes. And you know what's funny is that as Artaxerxes closes them out, they then find resource and they begin to build themselves. Then they come back and they go to King Darius and they tell Darius, hey, Darius, yo, these guys over here, they're still building. You, you need to go get them. They're over here building when they're not supposed to. They're over here building the temple, building the city. These guys are going to conspire. Notice where they got gossip. The gossip is coming. The slander is coming. Everything is coming. It's all coming their way. It's all coming in their direction. And yet what they have is a word. Because Cyrus wrote a word. Cyrus wrote a decree. Cyrus made it law. Cyrus made it what it is. Regardless of what your perceptions are, regardless of what your intentions are, regardless of what you think it should be and what, what, what others think it should be, regardless of any of that, there's a word that God has spoken on these people. There was a word that God spoke on Jerubbabel. There was a word that was spoken on this man and on these people about what God has calling, called them to do and what he's called them to accomplish. There was a word. There was a word and the word was written and the word has authority. No matter how you feel, no matter what is said, no matter the gossip, no matter the slander, no matter what is said against you, there's a word. Family, there's a word. It doesn't matter what people say about you. There's a word. It's written down because it's what God says about you. It doesn't matter about the slander. It's what God has called you to do. It doesn't matter if the enemy has sought to thwart the plans of God over your life. There's a word over you. There's a word. And that word comes with authority. That word never returns void. That word was written. And that word gives you permission. Ah, this word was written in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word, the word, the word, the word, the word speaks into who you are. The word speaks into who God has called you to be. The word speaks into what you are called into the word, the word, the word. And the one thing that you cannot contest and the one thing that you cannot question, the one thing that you cannot deny, the one thing you cannot call against is the word. Ah, these people, they begin to build because of the word. I don't care what you said about me. I know what Jesus says about me. I don't care what they've said. I don't care about my past. I don't care about the slander. I don't care about any of that. I have a word from God. The word is embodied in Jesus Christ. And this word calls me into relationship with him. The word makes me who he is. The word, when you see me, you see the word. This is the word and it's been written and it cannot return void. No authority, no government, no institution can get in the way. And it's the word that gives me authority and permits me to do what I've been called to do. I want you to put it in the text. I have a word. I have a word. I know some people right now, you've been discouraged because there's a lot of you who can testify to everything I just said. There's a lot of you that can say, I know exactly what he's talking about. I know exactly what the enemy sought to take from me. I know what the, the enemy came to destroy. I know what the enemy, I know what slander has done to my life. I know what the gossip has done. I know how at my, at my workplace, people have come to, to, to destroy me, to get rid of me, to be done with me. I've seen all of it. I know what all of it looks like. 
like. I've been through all of that. And yet I came to tell you today that it doesn't matter what man says about you. There's a word on you. You have a word And it's funny how this word has been sealed. They built the temple, but they sealed it with the sacrifice. It is the sacrifice of the lamb that they celebrate. For it is the word of God. There's some people right now that have been profoundly discouraged. You, you, and I'm speaking into this and I'm speaking into my life. As this, I told you guys, this is the read and rant. I'm, you're eavesdropping into what God is doing to me right now. He's speaking to me. I have, I'm, it, it, it's, for the past maybe, I don't know, few months, I have been wrestling with this because I never really confronted the pain that's associated with slander and lies and I'm realizing now that I've made all these mistakes I've done all of this guys I've had people close to me I shouldn't have I've had people speak on behalf of me that I that I permitted because of proximity I've done all of it I've I've heard multiple false narratives for a long time, I just did nothing. I just walked away. Oh, well, God's got that one. I know who I am. And I know who God has called me. But it doesn't take away from the trauma and the pain of being lied about. It doesn't take away from that. And I'm now confronting you. What the Lord is, is encouraging me with today is, in the end, his word will stand. In the end, his word will stand. The assurance that God is giving me today is let time prove me right. And when I say me, I'm talking about God. Let time prove me right. Time will prove me right. When the time comes, you'll be able to finish the work I've called you to finish. And so his time is going to prove me right. And I thank you, God, for that. I thank you, Lord, for attending to our hearts. I thank you, Lord, that, Lord, you have a word Lord, that's already been written. Lord, that we can rest on. You have a word that is not written on tablets of stone, but on the flesh of our hearts. You have a word, oh God. Lord, that goes beyond, Lord, any word. You have a word that has an authority over all words. You have a word, Lord, that is embodied, that became flesh and dwelt among us. You have a word for which we can put our righteousness on. We have a word, oh God, and I thank you. Lord, that you've given us this word. So bless us today, Lord. Give us confidence, Lord, to make the right decisions moving forward. Lord, give us the wisdom to not entertain 
slander and to entertain gossip and to not entertain. But Lord, give us the confidence, Lord, to not only cut off, but also to distance. Give us the wisdom of who to cut off and who to distance from. Give us wisdom to who we need to find reconciliation to draw near to. Lord, give us wisdom in the complexities of this life, oh God, that we'll find healing in your word. And we say that in Jesus' name. Amen.